Welcome. We are so glad you've joined us today. Are you ready for another Bayside Christian Church podcast? Let's get straight into it. Thank you. All right. Good. You can be seated. Uh, so good to be here with you in Harvey Bay. These nights fly by. And so if you're the type that likes to follow an actual Bible, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to get there in a second. As Pastor Ross said, um, all of our resources available at the back. We give all that away. We have uh, for over a decade now. Um, the only thing I would ask is that if you know you're not going to get anything tonight, God bless you. I'll see you next time. If you know before you leave you're going to stop by and grab something, if you would do me a favor and go there first before you chat, um, if we could, I'd like to be done with that table in the in the 10 minutes, about 10 minutes when the church is over, just simply because I've got to pack it all down and, and I've got to uh, organize it to be uh, to be delivered to Brisbane, all right, before I leave tonight. So if you could do me a favor, go there first and then, um, and then chat amongst yourself second, that would just be awesome. Um, it's been so good to be here with you. Um, I, I've got I've got a simpler message tonight. I want to talk to you about Jesus. I figured that that's a good topic to talk about, and um, and, and and part of it is is I did I did a really I did about two and a half hours of of sort of deep philosophy today. So um, and so I I don't even I don't want to think about that anymore. So we're, we're I want to talk to you about Jesus because anytime I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger not smaller, okay? So I want to talk to you about Jesus, but maybe not the side of Jesus uh, that you would have thought about before. I, I want to, look, Orthodox Christianity forever has been Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And I want to take a second and speak very slowly. We all affirm the divinity of Christ. No trouble at all. Shane does, Ross does, Bayside does, Dave Davies does, whoever church you came from around the Harvey Bay region, we affirm the divinity of Christ. But here's the problem. If we only think of Christ as God, then we miss the side that he was also fully human. And here's the problem with that. The problem with thinking of Christ only as God or as God without considering the fact that he was a man, is it's very hard, it can be very hard to organize and to work out how he taught us to live. For instance, when Jesus said, um, pray for those who persecute you, don't just love your friends, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's very easy to dismiss that and go, yeah, it's easy for him to say he was God, right? But, but he's actually called us to live that way. And the only way to organize that is to see him as a man as well. And Orthodox Christianity has been God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Tonight, I want to talk to you 100% about the human side of Jesus. I want to talk to you about Jesus as a first century rabbi and what it meant to be a disciple of that rabbi. The word disciple is a specific word that means to be a follower of a rabbi. And I want to talk to you about the dynamics, about what that meant. And my hope is, is that at the end of this, Jesus will be bigger than you thought before. The cross will work better than you thought before. The resurrection is more central than you thought before. And scriptures get bigger, not smaller. This is perhaps the most important message I'll ever preach in the entire world. Once I learned this, this changed my life. Once, when I learned this, I, I promise, this was years ago, but I spent probably three months repenting before I ever spoke of it. And, and I'm going to share it with you tonight because this was probably the most eventful thing I ever learned about Jesus. So let's look at these scriptures. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus calling the first four 
disciples, if you could bring that up. This is, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now, if you're a note taker, note the phrase, for they were fishermen. That's pretty important. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Now, that is literally the most uncompelling invitation ever. Stop fishing for fish. I'll, I'll send you to fish for people. That doesn't make any sense. And the sales pitch is, quite frankly, not very well thought out. Follow me, and then it just all works. Watch what happens. And at once, they left their nets and followed him. Frankly, that makes no sense. Let's talk about that for a second. So going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. So presumably they were fishermen as well with their father. And Jesus called them. And, they, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Four for four. Grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch is as compelling as, hey, follow me, okay. Now, what would possess grown people to do that? Grown men leaving everything they know, wives, children, jobs, families, communities, houses, fathers, and boats to follow a guy who only said, follow me. How does that work? What was Zebedee thinking? His entire workforce just quit with no notice. And if you're married, how does that conversation go? Hey, sweetie, how was your day? Pretty good. What'd you do? Quit my job. What? Quit your job. Yep, quit my job. Why'd you quit your job? This guy came by, said to follow him. Seemed like a good idea. Quit my job. Actually left my boat in the water. What? Where are you going? He didn't say. When you coming back? Didn't say that either. He just said follow him. Seemed like a good idea to me, so I quit my job to follow him. That makes no sense. How, how's that conversation going to go? And you know these people are serious. Look, leaving wives, children, jobs, families, communities, homes, and boats is serious. Look, it's one thing to leave your wife. I mean, there's women everywhere. But to leave your boat, that is serious stuff. What would be going through? I'm joking. What? Good grief. Lighten up. What would be going through these people's heads to do that? And here's the thing. You would think with a sales pitch that uncompelling, follow me, he would go one for a hundred. Like one out of every hundred people might be so down at all. Okay, I'll give that a go. But he goes four for four. Then he goes five for five. Then ends up 12 for 12. And he ends up having to turn people away. They're like, hey, can we follow you too? And he's like, not now, Right. Like this guy, this was compelling stuff. Let me show you the calling of the fifth disciple. First four disciple, fisherman. Fifth disciple, guy named Matthew in Mark chapter 2. Check this out. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me. There's that weird phrase again. Follow me, just Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Five for five, grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy who simply said, follow me. And once again, you might be thinking, Shane, he was God. Hang on a second. First, they didn't know that yet. That's first. Second, it doesn't give you credibility to introduce yourself as God. That doesn't lend itself to credibility, right? Right? 
He comes up and says, follow me. And grown men are leaving everything to follow him. Why? And when I learned this, it changed my life. I'd like to share it with you tonight. See, to understand this passage, we have to understand that in, in the first century, um, the greatest honor bestowed upon a Jewish boy was to be a rabbi. A rabbi was somebody that was entrusted to teach scripture. In the entirety of the Bible, only three people are called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. That is it. You never see Rabbi Peter, Rabbi James, Rabbi John. It's, it's Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. This was an important thing. It was sort of like this. This is Harvey Bay in Queensland. How many boys in Harvey Bay grow up wanting to play rugby league? All of them. How many of them are ever actually going to play for the Brisbane Broncos? Almost none of them, right? What has to happen is, is as you're playing rugby, the best of 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 the best go to the next league and the next league and the next league and the next league until you end up playing for the Brisbane Broncos and then the real, real best of the best of the best of the best of the best end up playing in the state of origin. That's how that works. But almost every rugby league player who's ever played is at some point told, I'm sorry, you don't have what it takes to play at the next level. Go back and earn a living at your family. Family trade, which is why Queensland is full of 45-year-old men who are full of back-in-the-day stories, right? Like, I was awesome back in the day, but then I hurt my knee, right? It's like that, right? But we know you weren't that good, and you know you weren't that good. It's just what we tell ourselves. It happens, right? Now, so that, that was what it was like to be a rabbi. Every Hebrew boy wanted to be a rabbi because it meant you were entrusted to teach Holy Scripture. But at the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best made it. Here's how they cut them, okay? I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, but it's important for us to know, all right? Here's how you became a rabbi in the first century. First, you had to memorize Leviticus by age six. Most of us are done, okay? If you memorized Leviticus by age six, it qualified you to go to the next school. Let me show you the name of the schools, if you could bring that next slide up for me. These are the two schools they would go to. I want to teach them to you. So with some um, Go Marones Gusto, all right? I want everybody to try this. It sounds like this, Bet Safar, all right? Let's try that. Ready? Go. Bet Safar. Let's try that again just because I want you to know it. Bet Safar. Now, Bet Safar literally means the school of the book. In the school of the book, it lasted from 6 to 12. And here was your job, memorize the entire Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You had from 6 to 12 to memorize the entire Torah. At the end of your 12th year, you had to prove you had memorized the entire Torah. What they would do is they would start a portion of the scripture, and when they stopped, you had to pick it up, Right? Most people couldn't do that. But if you could, it qualified you to take the exam. Now, which leads to this question. If to take the exam, you had to prove you'd memorized the whole book, what could they possibly be testing you on? The Torah exam at 12 years old was not based on your mastery of content. It was based on your ability to ask questions about the content in order to keep a conversation about God going. The greatness of rabbis was not known for their ability to answer questions. Rather, it was known for their ability to ask the right questions in order to keep a conversation about God going. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions, not his answers, his questions. Now, 
If you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, it qualified you to go to the next school. What they would do in your graduation ceremony at the end of the Bet Safar is they would take a piece of Torah and they would dip honey in it and you would put it in your mouth to remind you the words of the Lord are always sweet to the taste and may you deliver them sweetly. It is one thing to read a scripture or quote a scripture. It's another thing to quote it with the kindness and disposition of Messiah, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness God. Now that was the Bet Safar. Now the next school was called the Bet Talmud with the same amount of gusto. Let's say that together. Ready? Go. Bet Talmud. Let's try that again. Bet Talmud. That literally translates the school of disciple. The school or discipleship school. Okay. It lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long and five stages. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call those stages stage one, two, three, four, five. And the idea was, is if you graduated from stage one, you got to go to stage two. Yes. And then you go from two to three, three to four, four to five. This was an 18-year-long process that lasted from 12 to 30. If you've ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, and then at 30 years old, he shows up out of the wilderness, and people are going, Rabbi, 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 and they're handing him Torah scrolls, this is why. Somebody asked me one time, they said, how do you, I don't mean to be rude, but how do you know Jesus was a rabbi? I know Jesus was a rabbi because they called him rabbi, and they just didn't call people that. And everywhere he showed up, they wanted him to teach out of a Torah scroll. And he had a regular speaking spot in the temple. And just by observation, the people running the temple hated him. But they couldn't stop him because he was a... Yes, right. So, if you ever wonder why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, that's what was going on. You would go from stage 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5. At 30 years old, everybody graduates. And if you made it that far, that's a big deep breath. The only thing left to determine is, is what sort of rabbi will you be? Stage five, most important word we're going to learn tonight, next slide, is the word samika. Now, let me teach you that word with some gusto. It sounds like this, samika. Ready? Go. Samika. All right, let's try that again with a little bit more gusto. Ready? Go. Samika. Now, we're going to add one more thing to this because we want to sound Jewish. The move is, all right, so... Let's everybody try that. Ready? Okay, way more together. Ready? Yeah, that's so cool. Ready? All right, let's try that again. Ready? Now, there was two types of rabbis. There were rabbis with Samika, and there were rabbis without Samika. That was really bad. There were rabbis with Samika, and rabbis without Samika. Now, the word samika is simply the word authority. So there were rabbis with authority, and then there were rabbis without authority. 99.9% .9 of all rabbis were rabbis without authority. But the best of 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 the best, about once every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special that they would endue him with a special title called a rabbi with authority. Now, here was the difference. A rabbi without authority was a rabbi just the same. 
But that rabbi would have sat under the tutelage of another rabbi who would teach him his yoke. A rabbi's way of interpreting scripture was called their yoke. It was a summary statement of what they bound, what they loosed, what they allowed, what they forbidden, um, what was work on the Sabbath, what, how, how can you divorce, how can you not divorce, these sorts of things. This was called a rabbi's yoke. It was basically a rabbi's summary statement of how they interpreted scripture. And that rabbi would teach the student for 18 years his way of interpreting scripture. So when he became a rabbi, he then had to teach the next group the yoke of the rabbi that taught him. So that every yoke was then passed down from generation to generation to generation. But if you were a rabbi with authority, you could make up your own yoke so that every yoke in Israel was somehow traced back to some rabbi with authority. Now, so it's very important if someone had authority to know that they could make up their own yoke. Now, here's how they determined who had samika and who didn't. When you graduated from rabbi school, your commencement ceremony was a baptism. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. Why is Jesus not getting baptized till 30? What's going on here? This was, listen, they baptized you every time you changed social status. So if you went from unclean to clean, they baptized you. If you went from not rabbi to rabbi, they baptized you. Baptism was a, was a public signification of a change in social status, right? So he goes out to the desert to be baptized. At your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority, right? Now think about, think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. And John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of just Christians. No, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. In other words, the father's like, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. Boy, that was bad. Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. Which means he can make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. Think about your scriptures. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with yeah, it doesn't mean he was yelling. It meant he was saying something new. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is like Jesus' first sermon ever was called the Sermon on the... Yes, why? Because it was so well attended, he had to climb a mountain to create enough space to speak to the people. Now, look, you're a right, nice-looking group of people. I've been preaching for years, but I hardly have to climb a mountain to get away from you. Why, why, would, why, would, that, why would Jesus' first sermon be so well attended? You might be thinking, Shane, he was God. No, wait a minute. They didn't understand that, and that doesn't give you credibility to introduce yourself as God, okay? They, they, it was so well attended because rumor had it that there was a new rabbi with Samika, and rumor had it that his yoke was easier 
and his burden was lighter. People would have come from everywhere to hear about this new way to live. Now, first thing a rabbi would do, he just graduated. First thing a rabbi's got to do, he's got to go find disciples. Why? Because a rabbi who's not teaching people is, is like a monk. He's sitting around thinking about stuff, right? So, so think about it. Where would, you go find, where would you go find disciples? You'd go to the Bet Talmud, and you would find pre-vetted 12-year-olds. Here's what you'd find. Everyone has memorized the whole Bible up to that time. Everyone has proved their intelligence to ask questions about it. They've proved to be people of discipline, passion, understanding, intelligence. You didn't have to vet them, right? You would go to the Bet Talmud, and you only had to ask one question. Do I believe they could do greater things than me? And if the rabbi believed they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But 99% of them only ever heard, I'm sorry, you don't have what it takes to be a rabbi. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But this new rabbi with authority, does he go to the Bet Talmud to find his disciples? No, he goes to the banks of a lake. And who does he find? Fishermen. Wait a minute. If they were fishermen, what does that mean? It means they've been disqualified and he finds four people who'd been previously disqualified and he's like Simon Andrew James and John follow me and they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity why they had longed to hear those words their whole life but they had been disqualified and this new rabbi with Samika he is not just forgiving them or calling them. He is reinstating them. He is believing in them. Here's the yoke of our rabbi. Jesus qualifies the unqualified. That is the yoke of our rabbi. And aren't you glad? Somebody would have disqualified me and somebody would have disqualified you. Oh, by the way, check this out, right? First four disciples, what was their job? Fisherman, fifth disciple, what's his job? Tax collector, hang on. Where's Jesus find him? At the lake. Hold on. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fishermen. In other words, we're going to find out if you four have what it takes to follow me right now. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world? That is the yoke of our rabbi. Oh, by the way, once a rabbi got his disciples, the first thing he taught them to do is walk. They wanted to walk exactly like their rabbi. Jewish historians say that you could always tell which disciples belonged to which rabbi because of how they walked, right? Which makes me wonder if there wasn't a first century rabbi with like a limp, right? But they would learn to walk just like their rabbi. And, and you could always tell in walking school, you could always tell who, remember Jesus said things like, how will the world know you're my disciple unless you're walking like I walk? Unless you're living like I live. Hey, so, so you could always tell who the best student of the day was because the best student of the day got to be the line leader, j just like now. And you could always tell who that was because the rabbis wore these special shoes and it would throw up dirt and dust. And so you could always tell who the best student of the day was because he was the one covered in dust from his waist down. But it wasn't dust you wanted to wash off. It was dust you wanted to show off because it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It meant you were following the closest behind him. So you'd go back to synagogue and you'd be like, hey, check out my dust, right? Right, because it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Remember, there, there's this one time. Jesus said, if you ever go to a city and they don't accept you, what do you do? 
Shake the dust off. How's the same guy saying, forgive everybody, and yet shake the dust off your feet? Unless shaking the dust off your feet is a blessing. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you go to a place and they don't like you, still give them the best blessing you can give, even if it's just the dust off your feet. That is the yoke of our rabbi. And, and, and here's the thing, right? You'll either be covered in the, in the dust of your rabbi, or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues. You'll be covered in the dust of your mom, the dust of your dad, the dust of your denomination, or my personal favorite, the dust of that's just how I was always taught, as if that's going to stand the test of time. But we don't want to be covered in those dusts. We want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. Why? Because if we're covered in the dust of our rabbi, we'll cover others in the dust of our rabbi, and that is the hope for the world. (laughs) I love the yoke of our rabbi. I love the yoke of Jesus, how he taught us to live. Like as followers of Jesus, the only way the world will know that we follow him is if we're living like he taught us to live, right? Like people say, oh, they rejected Jesus. I've never met one person who rejected Jesus, not once. I have met people who've rejected the image of Jesus somebody presented to them, and that's two different things, right? So we need to, as a church, we need to be careful that we're not presenting a a, a bad image of Jesus. Like, Like, I'll give you an example. Like there's this one time. There was this lady, she was caught in the act of adultery, like in the act, in the act. (laughs) Now, that would be embarrassing to be caught in that act if it was appropriate. It's not a great spectator sport, right? But, but, But it's Wednesday night, you're in church. You guys know the Bible, right? What's the Bible clearly say to do someone caught in the act of adultery? It says to stone. They had a Bible verse to stone this lady. They bring Jesus, this poor lady, and they say, Jesus, the Bible says stone her. What's your yoke say? Now, Jesus is in a conundrum, isn't he? Does Jesus want to stone the lady? No, but is he supposed to keep the scripture? Yes, so he has a real problem, right? They said, Jesus, the Torah says stoner. What's your yoke say? Jesus says, you know what? You're right. The Torah says stoner. So my yoke says stoner. There, I've kept the whole thing. But I have Samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. The Torah says stoner, so my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. Right? This is genius stuff from a rabbi, right? And everybody gets tired of holding their stones. Jesus writes something in the dirt. What's he writing? I don't know. Na, 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 na. It says everybody gets tired of holding their stones, right? And they walk away. Jesus says nothing till they all walk away. That's really important. Jesus then tells the lady. He says, hey, lady. You could picture her coming up out of a crouched position. Like She said, hey, lady. Just answer the question, where are your accusers? Not what did you do. Not tell me about it. Not why. Uh-uh. Where are your accusers? She looks around. She says, they're not here. He says, great. Then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah said you had to stone someone caught in the act of adultery. But the Torah also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn someone. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. (laughs) Which that tells me a lot about Jesus. Jesus' challenge to his disciples was to never be people who desire to be right about one verse. Rather, be people who live more profound than that and fulfill Scripture. 
that we have a choice. We could be people who are right about one verse, or we could be people who fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, and in so doing, we can fulfill Scripture. If Jesus wanted to be right about one verse, he'd have stoned her right there, but he challenged us to be more profound than that and to be people who fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you were caught in adultery, how would you want to be treated? You'd want to be let off the hook, which he did, and then you'd want to be challenged to change your life. Here's what he says. He says, they're not here, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, which is why there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's not that you don't sin. It's just there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you by the law of God. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which leads me to this. The yoke of our rabbi could look at someone caught in the act of adultery and say, I don't condemn you. Could your yoke say that? And where have we found the authority to change his yoke and then expect the world to know we're followers of Jesus? The yoke I grew up with couldn't have done that. The church I grew up in, I saw it happen three times in my life. I could still remember it. Someone got caught in adultery and they announced it from the stage so that all might fear. That's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 who had severe daddy issues. And then they wonder why all people are rejecting Jesus. No, they're not. They're rejecting the image of Jesus you presented. Jesus looked at someone caught in the act. She wasn't repenting. She was caught. And he still could say kindly, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, we say it backwards. We say go and sin no more so God won't condemn you. What? No, 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 no. As if, oh, you better repent so God will be kind. What? No, 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 no. God is kind just because he's kind. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the other way around. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I love the yoke of our rabbi. Like, there was this one time he was having a pretty bad day. And he, was, he was hanging on a cross, you know. It's a really bad day. And, and he still has enough gumption and enough love and compassion to think about the person next to him asking to be remembered. And he says, that's it. Today you'll be, oh, and by the way, while we're at it, let's just forgive everybody at the foot of the cross who are throwing dice for my clothes. Why? Because Jesus forgives you because of the cross, not because of what you're doing at the foot of it. That is the yoke of our rabbi. You know, the yoke of our rabbi existed in the Old Testament too, right? Hebrews, uh, what was it, Hebrews 11, 12, like the, the by faith, by faith this guy, by faith that guy. You know the, that passage, right? By faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by faith Isaac, by faith Samson, by faith Jephthah, by faith David. Go back and read their stories. They were all jacked up beyond all recognition, right? Jesus was the one, the Spirit of God was the one getting in the middle of all of their lives and busting it wide open. By faith, Abraham, he gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. And it says he greatly profited from Egyptian affluence while his wife suffered in the, in the harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we be saying about Abraham? Let me ask you this. If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, would you welcome him? Or would you start an internet blog on his mistakes? That's the yoke of our rabbi. By faith, Moses. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that, and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was, the next day, the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. Yeah. 
God said, you'll do. I'll have you write the foundation of all scripture. It's the yoke of our rabbi. By faith, Samson. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. Samson lost a bet and killed 30 people. <laughs> this man's out of control. And God got in the middle of his life and used him mightily. It's the yoke of our rabbi. It's the yoke of our rabbi. By faith, David. David had what, 700 women? Oh my God, 700 women. 700. <laughs> 700, just let that sink in, 700. That's literally, that's literally having the entire town of Claremont. Right? And he still, he still went and committed adultery and murdered 17 people trying to cover up the one woman he wasn't supposed to have. Do you know there are Christian denominations that according to their bylaws, would never have David preach in their pulpit because of the mistake he made. Yet they'll open a book David wrote, call it the word of God, and fail to see the hypocrisy in that. It's not the yoke of our rabbi. Solomon, Solomon had a thousand. He outdid his dad by 300. A thousand women, a thousand. God said, I'll have you write the book on wisdom. Surely you learned something. You imagine that conversation? Excuse me, sir. Are you the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You got to be the smartest guy on earth. Let's write a book. It seems like the yoke of our rabbi from Genesis to Revelation was always qualifying disqualified people. It was always getting into the middle of people's messed up, flawed, normal lives and turning it into something radical and awesome. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Oh. See, I could talk about the yoke of our rabbi till tomorrow, but if you get hungry or tired, you'll turn on me. So I, I'll tell two more stories, one story from the Bible and one story from my own life. Um, so there's this amazing story in, in the book of Matthew, and it's really, I think it's chapter 9, but it's really easy to read over because it just says it real quick. So Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, let me, let me just give you a quick geography lesson. Caesarea Philippi is an hour and 20, an hour and 30 minutes by paved road on a motor car today. You didn't just decide to go. That'd be like walking from here to Bundaberg, Okay. It'd be, like, it'd be like saying, oh, we took a walk to Bundaberg, right? You, did, you had to have a reason to go there. That's first. Second, Caesarea Philippi was the place no Christian would go. Caesarea Philippi was, was the, whatever's going on in Las Vegas tonight is Nickelodeon compared to Caesarea Philippi, okay? It was a bad, bad place because it was the headquarters of the worship of a goat god called Pan, as a matter of fact, today, Caesarea Philippi is not called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Paniah, the worship of Pan, right? Still, to this day, I've been there. And let, me, let me show you a picture of the center of Caesarea Philippi. If you could bring that photo up for me. This is the middle of Caesarea Philippi. Um, the reason that photo is of such high quality is because I took it myself, right? Um, photographers everywhere are trying to figure out how to get other people's arms in the bottom left of their photo. But they can't. I got that one. Me, I did that. Come on and get some. Now, 
This is the center of Caesarea Philippi. It's about a 250-foot-high straight-up rock face. Now, everybody can see the big cave over to the left. That was called the entrance and exit to hell. That's where they believe the doorway to hell was, the doorway to Hades, right? Now, now the place to the right of it is the ruins of the temple of the goat god Pan. And to the right of that is something called the court of Pan and the nymphs. Think nympho, okay? So, so that, that was over there. Now, because I see children in the room, I'm going to use coded language, okay? But I need you adults to, to uh, read between the lines, okay? Pan was a goat god who received worship through a certain fertility ritual with goats. Okay, so, and this would have been going on. Everybody following me? Okay, and this would have been going on right there. If you go to Caesarea Philippi today, there's a big plaque that tells you the whole story. It's called the Court of Pan and the Nymphs. It would have been going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right there. Jesus took his youth group there. That was their missions trip. I would have been fired for sure. They walk in. I'm telling you, whatever the worst thing going on in Vegas tonight, is, it's, it's Nickelodeon compared to the debauchery of Caesarea Philippi. Okay? Jesus takes 12 guys there. And you can see, and he can hear their thoughts. Do you see why he has to focus them? That, like, that he walks in, and first thing he does, he's like, hey, 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 Peter, right here, bro. Right here. Who do you say that I am? He shakes it off, and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, We'll build a church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Why were they worshiping like that? Because they were taught that if they didn't worship Pan properly, he would open the doorway to hell and swallow the whole city into it. Jesus goes into the center of that kind of debauchery, and he doesn't even address the sin. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't post a meme on Facebook about it. He doesn't even bring it up. He essentially says, you are acting like that because you're scared of this? No. And Jesus stands right over the gates of hell and says, bring it on. We'll replace this with a church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I used to kickbox um, in real life. This is a real story. I did. <laughs> I used to kickbox. Um, I, I placed high enough in the U.S. Open to qualify for the NASCAR World Championships. Um, I was fairly good. Um, I, I, I won the Southeast Regionals two years in a row. Um, placed, I think, fifth, fourth or fifth in the U.S. Open. And I got ripped off. I placed fourth or fifth in the U.S. Open. I qualify for the NASCAR World Championships. Now, I'm 43. I have no intention of fighting today. Fighting has changed. When I fought, you stood up. If you clenched, a ref broke you, right? Is that now they take you to the ground. They pull your arm off. Just different, right? And it hurts too bad to get hit. Not interested. So, anyway, but back then, I could fight. Back then. And I came home from the U.S. Open. 
And all my friends came over to watch the video of it and look at the trophies, right? It was really pretty cool, right? There was this one guy in my neighborhood. His name was Kenneth Brown. And Kenneth was one of these freaks of nature, you know? I am six foot two. I am 85 kilos today. Kenneth Brown was six foot two, 95 kilos in the eighth grade. He, he, was, he was one of these guys that was like, like when we were in fourth grade together, we'd go to recess, he'd go shave, right? He was like shaving when he was 10. He was one of these guys, right? I, 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 I promise you, he was about Pastor Ross's size when we were in junior high, okay? This guy was unbelievably big. And he showed up at my house. He said, Shane Willard, I think I can whoop you. I looked at him. I said, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, no, I'm serious. I'm not fighting you. He said, why? I said, because you're twice my size. Rule number one, you don't fight people twice your size. He said, I went and bought boxing gloves to prove I could whoop you. And he brought them out. And I said, boxing gloves? You mean a boxing match? Like, we have to stand up. You can't take me to the ground. Uh, You said a fight. What you meant was a boxing match. Now, we can do that, right? As long as you can't grab me and take me to the ground, I'll stand up and punch with you. That ain't no problem at all, right? So we went outside, and all the friends made a ring. You could picture this, right? Fight, 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 fight. And I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown, and I beat him half to death. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. I couldn't hurt him. He's twice my size. But I was just in and out, in and out, just pop, 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 right? Started to irritate him. And he decided, I'm going to end this with one punch. And he threw a right cross. It was unlike any right cross I'd ever seen in my life. Let me show it to you in real speed. I actually had time to think. I'll move now. When he finished throwing the punch, he left himself in exactly this position. And I thought, I'll end this now. And never before nor since have I hit a human being that hard. It's a perfect shot. If you're into striking and martial arts, it's called striking from the ground up. It's, it's where big muscles are leading. It's not like, no, it's big muscles leading small muscles. Everything's compact, and you're striking from the ground. Everything's coming up this way, and it was a perfect shot right on the base of his chin. Bam! His head snapped back. His knees buckled, and I just sort of stood over him like this, waiting for him to fall. In retrospect, I should have kept hitting him. But I never hit a human being that hard in my life. I just sort of looked, I just sort of stood over him like this, waiting for him to fall. He did, and he caught his balance, shook his head, and he looked up at me, and now he was mad. <laughs> his face turned red. And he looked at me and said, Boy, is that all you got? And it was. I had hit him as hard as I've ever hit a human being, and he was still coming. Now, how many of you know if you hit someone with your best shot and they're still coming, you lose? That's your best shot. You lose. I forfeited, took the gloves off, declared him the winner. No trouble. You know what Paul said? Paul said the yoke of our rabbi was put on a public display at the cross. 
Oh, pray for your enemies. Bless those who despitefully use you. Oh, blessed are the merciful, they'll obtain mercy. Huh? How about 39 lashes? How about a crown of thorns? How about three nails, two in your hands and one between your two feet? How about that? How about that? How about some mocking? How about some scourging? How about some spitting? Huh? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, smite us. Come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Break your yoke. Break your, you said that you had to love us. Break your yoke. If you break your yoke, you'll have no moral authority in the whole world. Come on, send the angels to destroy us. And they kept doing that. And he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving. Which is why any declaration of the yoke of our rabbi, that if you don't do something, Jesus is going to be like, no, that is not the yoke of our rabbi. I don't care if there's a 25-foot cross on the top of the building. That is not what Jesus died for. Jesus kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving. And they kept beating him and 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 beating him. You can't do more to a man than they did that day. And they killed him. You can't do more to a man than kill a man. And you know what happened? We don't know. Other than the fact that Peter told us. Jesus must have told Peter later. But Peter tells us that when Jesus died... He descended into hell, and he preached to the dead. I love that. You know what I think happened? I think Jesus went to hell, and he looked at Satan right in the eye and said, boy, is that all you got? That was it. Was that, I want you to make sure that was your best shot. You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No. No, no, no. Three days from now, I'm going to walk out of here. And the whole three days, I'm going to preach. I wonder how his altar call went. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says when Jesus rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. Where'd they come from? I don't know. Anyway, but here's what I do know. I do know that Jesus walked out of there three days later. And you know where he found himself? He cooked breakfast on the beach for the very person who denied him in his time of need. And you know what? Go read the story. He doesn't even bring it up. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, man. You sure you love me? Yep. You sure you love me? Out of, after all this, you still love me. You know I love you. Then let's go change the world. That is the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. <laughs> Which leads me to a few questions. One, let's actually just cancel the white noise of our week for a second. And let's give this its due wrestling. Is there any place we've acted as if we have authority other than in Christ and we've changed his yoke? Because unless you've been given special samika and you haven't, then we have to live the yoke of our rabbi and teach the yoke of our rabbi. Where have we changed it? Where have we treated adulterers different than he did? Where have we treated people who persecuted him different than he would have? Where, where have we treated people who betrayed us different than he treated people who betrayed him? Who do we need to cook breakfast for, on the beach for? Is, is there anybody that used to come to church here who doesn't feel welcome here because of something they did? And maybe we need to send a text or an email or a phone call or go sit with them and say, you know what, you, you know, just come on back. We're not even going to bring it up. You get a fresh start, a second chance, a clean slate, a do-over. Come on back, man. It's the yoke of our rabbi. Is there anybody that we need to cook breakfast on the beach for? Has anybody done you wrong and you've sort of written them off your life? And maybe we need to reach out. Now, maybe they won't receive it. That's up to them. But it's up to us to be the people reaching out. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But I do know this. The yoke of our rabbi is the hope of the world.
It is the hope of the world. And Jesus, listen, I bless you to know that you serve a God who believes in you more than you believe in him. I bless you to know he believes you could do greater things than him. I bless you to know he's entrusted you with his yoke for this city, this country, and ultimately the world. And it is the hope for the entire world. I bless you to not just be people on your way to heaven when you die. I bless you to be people committed to living Jesus' way right here, now, today. I bless you to be those people. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to cross the line and trust Jesus with your life for the first time. And if you need to do that, you could say a prayer, something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm going to choose tonight to trust your version of my life story instead of the one I've written on my own. I think it'll be better. I'd love for you to teach me how to live. I'd love to follow you. I'd love that. I'd love that. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been following Jesus for a while, but in listening to this, you know and I know that we've changed his yoke. And we can't blame the world for believing in an image of a yoke that isn't actually his. We need to be the picture of that yoke to this world. And we need to take a second tonight and repent. And it might sound something like this. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for changing your yoke. I had no right. Would you empower me and give me the courage to live back under that yoke? So, my brothers and sisters of Harvey Bay, may you not just be people on your way to heaven when you die. May you be people committed to bringing heaven to every place you see hell here. May you not just be a group of people who tick all the boxes of doctrine and belief, but may those doctrines fundamentally shift the way we see our whole world. May we not just see Jesus as a fire escape. May we see him as a way of life. May we be those people who bring heaven here because that's what Jesus came to do to establish the kingdom of God here on this earth. I hope that was a real blessing to you tonight. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I can't wait to be again with you next year. And until then, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Thank you for joining us. The Bayside Christian Church community aims to transform our city and beyond with the life and power of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more or just keep in touch, check us out at www.baysidechristianchurch.com.au or follow us on our social media sites at Bayside Christian Church.